You know, for our listeners, we're talking to endocrinologist Dr. Ashwini Gori. She is a specialist in endocrine conditions and, um, you know, she is um, also an Indian classical dancer. But I will go back to some of the history of endocrinology. You know, a deeper understanding of endocrinology was gained in the late 19th century with contributions by the following. Claude Bernard studied blood glucose levels and the communication among cells, tissues, and organs. In 1889, Charles Brown Sicard, a French physician, was probably the first person who came with an idea of endocrine hormone replacement therapy when he injected himself with extracts of animal testicles and reported significant improvement in his strength, stamina, and concentration. Joseph von Mehring and Oskar Menkowski observed the effects of removing the pancreas from dogs. Secretine was the first hormone to be described in 1902. Thereafter, further advances in science and experimentation in surgery, such as those by Harvey Cushing, led to the identification of many more hormones. In 1916, what is now known as the Endocrine Society was founded as the Association for the Study of Internal Secretions. In 1921, Frederick Banting and Charles Best discovered insulin when they reversed diabetes in dogs using pancreatic islet cell extract of healthy dogs. They later purified bovine insulin with the help of James Collip and John McLeod and used it to treat humans with diabetes. This revolutionized the treatment of diabetes worldwide. Since then, the field of endocrinology and especially diabetes has continued to grow with the creation of new diabetes medication, the invention of the insulin pump, and advances in pancreas and islet cell transplantation. So we want to talk about one of the most common endocrine problem in pregnant women. And that is diabetes, like you said. How do you just simply define diabetes in layman's terms? Everybody seems to know what diabetes is because a lot of people in the population have this condition. But how do we define diabetes? And there are kind of two kinds of diabetes. And we're going to talk about the second one. But how do you define the commonly known diabetes disease? So I really like to say, I mean, simply put, it is a disease of too much sugar in your blood. Doesn't matter where that sugar comes from or <laughs> which organs are leading to that excessive blood sugar. Going to, there are cutoffs by different societies. There are things that we look at 
our blood sugar, our body regulates it very beautifully between a level of 70 to 99, so less than 100 at any given time. And even after you eat something sweet, it may go up for a little bit, but it will come right back down. And generally speaking, if that sugar tends to stay 126 or higher in the morning when you first wake up, when you haven't eaten anything, you need to consult a doctor because you're probably looking at diabetes. If your sugar goes up over 200 anytime for any reason, once again, there should be some concern that those sugars are impaired. They're not coming down or like they should, and this could be diabetes. And then, of course, there are different ways of diagnosing, like using an A1C, which is really a three-month measure, a sophisticated test to look at how much sugar is attached to your red blood cell, and can it give us an estimate of what your sugar has been doing for the last three to four months. An A1C of 6.5 or higher is consistent with or this is where people are told they have diabetes. So yes, simply put, it is basically a disorder of too much sugar in the blood. So now there's a condition of pre-diabetes, and this is an important risk factor for developing you know, type 2 diabetes. What is this condition of pre-diabetes, and what are the things in an, a woman's everyday life or living that puts her at risk for pre-diabetes that can progress to diabetes? So most certainly, I have a lot of patients come into my clinic and ask me, do I have diabetes or do I not? What is this in-between thing? So I wish I could tell you there is a black and white answer to yes, you have diabetes or no, you, have, you do not have diabetes. That in-between that maybe you're going to have diabetes over the the next period of 5, 10, 15 years, but you don't have it right now, is what is prediabetes. So we have talked about polycystic ovaries in detail uh, today, and insulin resistance was one of the things I mentioned while talking about polycystic ovaries. So insulin is one of the most important, what I call anabolic hormone in our body. It is related to Converting, storing, processing energy in the body. Yes, Banting and Best discovered insulin 100 years ago. We just celebrated a century in 2021. And that's how most people understand what insulin is, is it's something taken as a shot to reduce your blood sugars. But really, insulin is a hormone that your body, our pancreas, makes every single day generally in relation to food. And the main effect in layman's terms really is that insulin needs to pick up that sugar, use it as energy, provide it to different organs and tissues in the body to be utilized as energy. What we don't talk about enough is, hey, if that sugar is not being pushed into muscles and tissues, it's not being taken up by the organs that need it, where is it going? Insulin is still working, not like it was meant to, but it's now converting or storing all of that energy as body fat stores. So when somebody develops diabetes, the most common type, which is the type 2 diabetes, what we notice that for years in advance, 5, 10, 15 years often, there have been telltale signs to say, hey, that sugar was not being utilized properly. 
that period, that period of high risk is what truly is insulin resistance or prediabetes. That is the time your insulin is not quite working properly, but then your pancreas just knows to make more insulin, goes back to that hypothalamus, pituitary axis, and negative feedback loops in the body. So there's a general time period of excessive insulin secretion and decreased insulin action. We do think lifestyle triggers are probably one of the biggest reason why we see insulin resistance in this day and age. Life has gotten easier, more simple. We no longer have to get out of our couch to order groceries. I mean, hey, it's easy, it's convenient, but we are not expending the energy. Our muscles and tissues are not asking for that sugar. And that insulin is really working elsewhere, like the thecal cells on the ovaries making too much androgen. So yes, lifestyle issues are probably the most common reason for what I call the pre-diabetic pandemic going on across this world. Yet what we will see is there are definitely genes involved, some that we may know of and some that we still have not discovered because we see a very strong familial tendency or link. You can often find people come up and tell you, I have at least 10 other members in my family that have diabetes. And most of the time when you check them or you check those blood sugars, they are what we call in that impaired range. They're not that perfectly normal, 70 to 99 any given time of the day. So yes, pre-diabetes or borderline or insulin resistance, no matter how you want to call it, does exist. It is that precursor condition that increases your risk of having type 2 diabetes. And on that same note, I mentioned, just as we talked about, that insulin is working elsewhere on other tissues, disrupting hormone balances, which can then lead to increased cardiovascular complications down the road. I mean, you mentioned like all the points I was thinking about this pre-diabetes, the, you know, the obesity, the genetics, you know, health behaviors. I mean, there's also the smoking that is a risk, right? I want to talk, you to talk about smoking and acculturation. You know, people move from one culture to another and their risk of diabetes just changes because, again, this acculturation is a process by which immigrants adopt the attitudes, the values, the customs, beliefs, and behaviors of a new culture and contributes to health behaviors, obesity, and type 2 diabetes in the immigrant population. And studies have shown that the acculturation can actually go both ways. Some have also linked acculturation with a higher socioeconomic position, which like you kind of alluded to, there's more access to healthcare, more leisure time, physical activities, which may have differential effects on health outcomes. And um, so, you know, please don't forget to mention that smoking is definitely a risk factor in the pre-diabetic stage and acculturation can be an issue. 
And then we probably should talk about epigenetics with um, women and pregnant women. Yes, so definitely very, very important and beautiful points. I do say that actually being an immigrant uh, physician, <laughs> so we think about acculturation in good and bad ways. I definitely say there's a lot of adapting to new cultures or eating differently from what you did before can contribute to diseases or conditions, especially prediabetes, that did not exist previously in those populations. But sometimes better access to healthcare can mitigate some of those risks. So it can be a good and a bad factor in, in the sense. Smoking, no matter what, I don't think this discussion would be complete without mentioning it is a risk factor. And as we talk about lifestyle changes, as we talk about healthy eating, quitting or backing off, smoking cessation is just as important. Now, uh, we also say there's a lot of talk about our different populations and different risks. So there is something called, or there are studies on metabolic inflexibility. So studies have shown that as compared with non-Hispanic white women, non-Hispanic black women who were fed a high-fat diet failed to shift their metabolism to increase fat oxidation or decrease carbohydrate metabolism despite increases in their insulin levels. So the metabolic inflexibility may be something that's also contributing to this whole obesity or insulin resistance epidemic. The minority populations definitely seem to be greatly affected. Even when we think about or talk about complications of diabetes, which are often, I like to separate them as microvascular complications, which means those affecting the small blood vessels in diabetes and macrovascular complications, which affect the big blood vessels. And we often see that microvascular complications are also often seen more frequently in minority populations. In general, though, overall, with more than 346 million people affected worldwide, I would definitely say, I mean, this is definitely a very big or a bigger concerning pandemic that we are dealing with at, at this time. You know, going to the interface of environmental and clinical biological factors, you know, talking about epigenetics and early life events, you know. Now we know that early life conditions such as prenatal undernutrition and stress, maternal stress of the pregnant woman or maternal obesity during pregnancy can modify the developmental biology in the baby that is not yet born, leading to a future increased risk of developing obesity and type 2 diabetes in, in the offsprings. And that is a fact, right? Are you seeing more diabetes in younger people? It definitely is. So we have seen more and more type 2 diabetes in a population where I would not even bother testing. Really, if you had a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old come in, they had to have type 1, <laughs> which is no longer the case. So yes, 
I, I would even take a step further and say overweight and diabetic women are going to give birth to overweight, often diabetes-prone offspring. So certainly there are those factors to consider, things like birth weight, things like maternal health conditions and race will affect and then poverty levels, the neighborhood that the child grows in. There are many environmental factors which over time are going to contribute to that risk of prediabetes, diabetes, and because of that, further cardiovascular complications and mortality. You know, so indeed in non-Hispanic Blacks, you know, they tend to have lower birth weight than non-Hispanic white women. And this may be related to maternal conditions during pregnancy. It could be just a stressful life, you know, stressful life event, a lot of depression, anxiety, you know, a lot of economic inequality, lower income and education, Indeed, less access to healthcare in non-Hispanic Blacks. There's the issue, the big issue of racial discrimination and uh, residential segregation, neighborhood level poverty. And so at times the pregnant women have undernutrition and researchers believe that the baby will slow its growth rate and modify the structure and function of its organs and systems, leading to metabolic dysfunction at birth. So this is a baby that hasn't even faced this world and is already, you know, born with this disadvantage. And studies have also linked this low birth weight to high levels of cortisol in childhood and adolescent. And they're saying that this chronic hormone cortisol exposure can contribute to that baby even you know, being fat with abdominal adiposity and insulin resistance already. So it's definitely, as I said, it's a beautiful complex system and one hormone affects the others. So just like you said, this is a newborn or even a fetus inside the mother who is now seeing effects, not just from insulin anymore, but cortisol, uh, blood pressure changes in the mother can affect and will affect conditions in the baby. So under normal conditions, placental 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase protects the fetus from maternal cortisol by converting cortisol to inactive cortisone. However, in a severely stressed mother, excessive stress hormones can reduce the effectiveness of this protection, exposing the fetus to maternal cortisol level. So truly, this is why we call it the endocrine and metabolic system. Hormones have effects and side effects downstream on multiple, multiple organs. And this is going to show up starting with as early as the fetus and the newborn and leading to morbidity and mortality in that future generation, the further downstream. So with the issue of epigenetics, you know, epigenetic changes in the pattern of cellular gene expression may influence how a fetus that is unborn adapts to an adverse intrauterine environment. You know, epigenetic changes are those that modify the patterns of gene expression without changing the sequence of its DNA, the nucleotide sequence, and may represent an adaptation to a significant 
prior stressor? It's definitely, it's a changing world. <laughs> and as yes, epigenetics may change our stress response over time. I believe that's how prediabetes and diabetes has evolved to the extent that it is today. And just as we say we don't know what's in our food and our drinks and our plastic bottles and so on, we really don't know what's in the days and weeks and years to come as far as maybe since we have some understanding of this complex system, could we start modifying factors early on? Can we start making those changes early on? Because we can see all those downstream effects. For today or for this discussion, I still maintain the best thing that you can do that is possible, that we know works, is an intensive lifestyle change. Dr. Gauri, thank you so much for all the knowledge that you've imparted to us today. But I want to ask you one more thing. You have done something in which you're the only person that I know that has done this particular thing. Can you talk to us briefly about this, please? So this year, March of 2022, three other friends and I decided we are going to climb up to Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Kilimanjaro is, it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. It's in Tanzania, Africa, and it starts at sea level. And the peak, Uhuru Peak, is at 19,341 feet. So, hey, I can tell you that's not something I had ever done before this time either. But you did it with three friends. Was it tough? It was definitely the hardest thing we have ever done in our lives. Definitely the most, I mean, hey, worthwhile or <laughs> thing that we've ever done. And so happy that we survived to tell the story. But you did it. Um, but you were conditioned. You, you, you had been training for this, right? So all of us, my friends included, what we call uh, recreational runners. So yes, we run long distances, including marathon distances, which are 26.2 miles. We have been over the past year hiking in different places in Georgia because it's such a pretty state to hike. And last August, so August of 2021, we actually climbed up Mount Elbert in Colorado. It's the tallest mountain peak in Colorado and it's 14,000 feet plus some change. Did that in one day without really much of a preparation. Started at three o'clock one morning hiked up the whole mountain and came down around 7 p.m. that evening. And once we could do that without oxygen, <laughs> uh, decided we could set our eyes on bigger goals. So yes, outside of Mount Elbert, uh, I really can't say we have any high altitude training because no place in the United States is tall enough. Wow. So you have climbed. So Dr. Ashwinigori, you have climbed to the peak, to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. So yes, I have. Wow. You're the only person that I know that has done this. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh, you're welcome. I say, hey, I'm not the only person there. On a good note, a lot of people, 20, 30,000 people around the world try to attempt Mount Kilimanjaro every year. I do believe success rates are improving. It used to be that only 50% ever made it to the top. I believe those rates are higher now if you train properly. 
Altitude is a big deal and then just get used to tenting out in the mountain and not having a shower for seven days. Thank you. You're such an amazing, amazing doctor. Thank you so much for even sharing that with us on this podcast. 